The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We'll be considering verses 35 to 45. When Dr. Rogers asked me to preach this Sunday on the topic of leadership, my thoughts went to this passage, especially verse 45 has been impressed upon me since I was a young believer. I was a senior in high school when I was a part of a youth retreat weekend put on by the Episcopal Church of South Texas, a retreat called Happening. And uh, four of us were, were, had a servant role for the whole week in serving about 50 adults and youth. And uh, our, our name, our title was Gopher, because that was our job. It was go for this and go for that. And it was a long, exhausting, yet exhilarating weekend of service. And my fellow Gophers and I actually took Mark 10.45 and wrote it on our arms and our faces with marker just to impress upon ourselves and the attendees, the purpose of our calling. Well, Jesus' words were no doubt etched into the minds and hearts of the first disciples, especially in his response to a disturbing request from two of them. May his words be impressed upon our hearts as well. Please follow as I read Mark 10, beginning verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this challenging word from your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that impresses upon us our true calling as believers, 
called to bear his likeness to follow him. May you teach us this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In his best-selling business success book, Good to Great, author Jim Collins profiles the story of Darwin Smith, the CEO of Kimberly Clark, who led this company to transform them from a mere mediocre paper mill company in the 70s to a world-class consumer product company, featuring brands like Kleenex and Huggies and so forth. Mr. Smith was a man who carried and walked with no airs of self-importance. He was the kind of guy that preferred the company of plumbers and electricians who spent his vacation time at his farm in the cab of a backhoe digging holes and moving rocks. Smith never reached management celebrity status, but he did turn Kimberly Clark around, performing at a level of stock returns four times greater than the general market for 15 years. Two months after he was appointed CEO, Darwin Smith was diagnosed with nose and throat cancer. The doctors told him he had less than a year to live. Well, Smith promptly told the board that he had no plans to die soon. He proceeded to work through his suffering and lived another 25 years, serving as CEO for 20. Perhaps Smith's most dramatic leadership decision was to sell all the paper mills, which had been the backbone, the core of Kimberly Clark's business. He could clearly see that there was no future, that that industry was doomed to mediocrity, to achieve greatness, and to compete with Procter and Gamble and other great companies Kimberly Clark must make sacrifices. Like the legend of General Cortez, who reportedly destroyed his ships when they reached the New World, Smith left his executive board with one option, succeed or die. Companies, organizations, and even churches often do not recognize true leadership nor do they often understand what it takes to achieve true greatness. And even if they do understand true greatness, they are not often willing to do what it takes to achieve glory. Any who would aspire to greatness in the kingdom of God must embrace the path tread by the Lord Jesus, the way of the cross, the road that passes through suffering service, and sacrifice. The request of James and John gives Jesus the opportunity to show the difference between false glory and true glory through the cross of suffering. James and John approach Jesus with a very bold request. They ask him to do whatever they ask. They ask for a blank check. Now, Matthew's account of the gospel, their mother, Salome, is part of the request party. And as she was probably the sister to Jesus' mother, Mary, this could have been a family power play. Jesus is wise. He will not grant the brother's request until he first hears it. And what is it that they want? 
They want what most of us want. They want glory. They seek the positions of honor at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he enters into his glory. Now, we don't believe that James and John were thinking of heavenly glory at this time. They were more likely thinking about conquest. They believed in Jesus. They thought they had picked the winning ticket. He was the Messiah, the son of David, who would overthrow the Romans. So they call shotgun before the others. They assume positions for themselves. James and John sought after a false glory. As Jesus points out in verse 38, they really don't know what it is they're asking for. They're like Mary and Pippin, eager to join Sam and Frodo on adventures, not having much of a clue as to what will involve them in the mission of the ring. What makes this request doubly troubling is that Jesus had just informed his disciples for the third time that he indeed would be handed over to the priest and the scribes to be condemned, to be spit upon, flogged, and killed. They didn't get the message. It was incomprehensible to them. And it was just as incomprehensible as the things Jesus had been trying to tell them, like it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Or prior to that in Mark, when he says that whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. Or perhaps prior to that, when Jesus offered difficult teaching regarding divorce that was hard for the disciples to swallow. And before that, in the Gospel of Mark, where we find the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. After just having heard Jesus say the second time that he would be killed. In response, Jesus had said, whoever would be first must be last and the slave of all. The disciples' vision of glory was tainted with worldly attitudes of wealth rather than poverty, power, not weakness, comfort without suffering. Praise with no derision. That is man's glory. Man's glory that is a mere flicker of the candle that smells nice for a time, but in the end is only smoke. Jesus challenges these brothers, asking them if they are indeed able to drink the cup that he will drink or be baptized with the baptism that he will undergo. These brothers had some idea of the cost of the affliction. They considered it well worth the gains and yet sorely underestimated the trials and the afflictions that lay ahead. Without even batting an eyelash, they respond, yes, we are able. Jesus doesn't argue with them. But he affirms that they will indeed drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism of affliction. James will be the first of the twelve to be martyred. And John will be the last and lone survivor after a martyrdom attempt. 
many decades away. Jesus is not falsely modest. He does not deny his ambition. He fully expects glory. He intends to accomplish his mission. And yet he submits to the will of his Father and yields the prerogative to the Father to grant positions of honor and authority in the kingdom of God. Jesus is a realist. He knows that the path to glory must go through the cross. And he is prepared to face trials, rejection, and betrayal, stripping and scourging the nails in agony of death on a cross. Scholar Sinclair Ferguson says that there is no crown without a cross, no glory without suffering, no honor without humility. Jesus shows us that the glory of true leadership is triumph through suffering. He told his followers to count the cost, to take up the cross and follow him. There are no shortcuts. You want glory. If you want greatness, you must consider the cost. Are you prepared to endure suffering? The suffering that your loving Heavenly Father would deem good for you and for his glory, the glory of Christ through suffering. Well, the path of glory is also paved with service. In verses 41 through 44, Jesus distinguishes between false greatness and true greatness. Mark records that when the other ten disciples learned of James and John's request to Jesus, they are filled with indignation. Their own self-serving pride is inflamed by the Thunder Brothers' selfish ambition. Like Cain towards Abel, like the rest of Jacob's sons towards Joseph, a storm of jealousy and resentment is brewing. Jesus wisely enters in calls, actually summons the disciples to himself to both calm the storm and offer them instruction about true greatness. He knew that the disciples were very well aware of the oppressive nature of the Gentiles. The Jews despised Roman rule, much like their ancestors hated their captors in Egypt and Babylon. The rule of men is a matter of power and pomp, of lording over one's subjects. Later, Jesus will rebuke Pontius Pilate, informing him that his power was given him by God above. Peter uses the same language here in this verse in his own letter to the churches, instructing the elders, the under-shepherds of God's flock, to not lord over the flock in a domineering Friday night, Russia introduced a glorious opening ceremony to this year's Winter Olympics, displaying the greatness of its cultural heritage and history. Noticed and uh, the what was clearly absent from their recording of their own history is a story of oppression and cruelty at the hands of communist leaders over the last century. 
is the nature of rulers to cling to power and control, to lord over their subjects, to abuse both power and privilege. But it shall not be so among you, says Jesus to the twelve. Jesus defines greatness as service. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's hard for those of us who want to be great to take on the role of the servant. We are afraid that we might be thought less of, taken advantage of. We fear that we may not get the recognition that we think we deserve. Others of us are challenged by our selfishness. We simply don't want to give up our time to serve others. For some of us, our main problem is our pride. I'm too good for this, we tell ourselves. This work is beneath me. Many summers ago when I was in college, I worked for a month at Camp Canacook in southern Missouri, one of the largest Christian sports camp in the, camps in the country. And while there, I served down at the lakeside as a dock daddy. My responsibilities included running the swimming program and overseeing the jet skis and the water skiing and the great inflatable, inflatable blob. It's a tough job, but someone had to do it. Canicut draws children from all over the nation, many from privileged homes, some from not-so-privileged homes, and most with a very impoverished understanding of the gospel. One day, I worked with the owner of the camp, Joe White, and as we were going on our rounds, I noticed Joe picking up trash along the way, and I soon followed his lead. And at one point, Joe turned to me and says, Tucker, I love picking up trash. I don't think Joe White really loved picking up trash, but he did love Jesus, and he loved those kids. And he was willing to do the menial work necessary to put on display the love of Christ for needy sinners and to put on display for workers like myself to have a model to follow. Joe White's now a nationally recognized author and conference speaker, whom I believe, I'm convinced, has earned the right to speak. Sinclair Ferguson says elsewhere that true greatness is measured by our service, not in how high up the ladder we climb, but how low we are willing to descend to help others. Every April, our session gathers to evaluate the various nominees proposed by the congregation for the offices of elder and deacon and deaconess, and we use a kind of point system to help tally up the ranking of how we're going to go about asking people to serve. And over the years, I've kind of developed really two criteria who do I give my points to? I save them for the men and women who serve, those people who are the first to volunteer, those who jump in who are not looking for thanks or praise. But secondly, I also look for those based upon how they treat other people. Peyton Manning is one of the greatest NFL quarterbacks ever. But in the last Sunday night Super Bowl, he was not so great. 
And in fact, his greatest test might not have been the Seattle Seahawks defense, but after the game when a vendor asked for his autograph. Sometimes greatness is tested not by how you win, but by how you lose. It's reported by a reporter that Peyton told the vendor patiently that he would not sign now, but he would when he came out of the locker room, and and apparently he did. How we treat others who are seemingly unimportant is a sign of true greatness. How you treat people who can't pay you back when there is no reward or recognition when nobody will see one way or another your interaction with them. Know that your Father in heaven sees you. He sees you when you're at work after hours, when you're waiting patiently for the clerk at the store who keeps fumbling through the process, when you're home alone with the kids. Serve him. Serve him who served the unimportant, who came to serve you and I. Well, I believe the third mark of leadership in this text is sacrifice. True leaders do not just tell people what to do, they show their followers how to do it. Jesus is not a do-what-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of leader. He is a lay-life-down kind of leader. False leaders claw their way to the top, climbing over the backs of others. They attain power, cling to it steadfastly, and stiff-arm any opposition in the way. False leaders lie and deceive to get their way, and only acknowledge it when they have to, when it's politically expedient. False leaders make excuses, passing the blame on others, They pass the buck, kick the can down the street, and they fail to take responsibility for the looming problems right before them. False leaders feel entitled to power and privileges. They do not know how or when to leave office. They are consumed with their own reputation rather than God's glory and the good of others. False leaders are committed to their own self-protection, expecting others to make sacrifices for them. They are like the false gods that they serve, demanding offerings and gifts and delivering little or nothing in return. Jesus is a true leader. He is the son of the God who does not demand sacrifice, but gives it. Jesus paid a ransom. He bought our freedom at the cost of his own blood to deliver you and I from the slavery of our sin and the threat of eternal punishment and separation from God. He is the suffering servant who is consumed with his Father's glory, committed to our good, who gave up his rights and privileges, who took up responsibility for our hopeless condition, who always spoke the truth in love, who submitted himself to the insults of men, the scourge on his back, the thorns on his brow, the nails in his hands, and drank to the dregs the cup of God's almighty wrath. True leadership is lay life down leadership. 
the sacrifices. In the 1980s, Wells Fargo Bank set out to become one of the greatest, the greatest bank in the western United States. Its CEO of the time, Carl Reichart, was determined to get rid of waste and to eliminate a hundred years old banker entitlement mentality in its culture. For starters, he told his board that they would all make sacrifices. They would not ask others to suffer while they sat high and dry unaffected. They froze executive salaries for two years. They closed the executive dining hall and replaced it with a college dorm food service center. They closed the executive elevator. They sold off their corporate jets. They eliminated Christmas trees and other perks out of the executive offices. In board meetings, they met in secondhand beat-up old chairs with the stuffing hanging out. Across the street, Bank of America preserved its posh executive kingdom, its great conference rooms, its oriental rugs, its panoramic view of San Francisco Bay. Guess which company beat the stock market by three times over the next decade? Wells Fargo. True leadership sacrifices. Gives up its rights. Gets its hands dirty and does what it takes to achieve greatness. Jesus, the Lord of glory, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He calls us to serve. I believe Paul says it best in Philippians 2, that in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Jesus calls you and I to lay down our lives. That means death to self, death to agenda, submitting to the Lord Jesus himself. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. But thirdly, Jesus paid a ransom. A ransom only he could pay. Our leaders can't pay that ransom. It's a reminder to you and I that we are not the Messiah. You are not the Savior. You need that precious ransom for yourself. And your first and foremost calling, whether you're an elder, a deacon, a deaconess, a lay leader of any kind, your first task is to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. To accept his ransom in your place and offer that ransom as the only hope for sinners. In good to great... Collins and his research team recording, came, came up with a concept that they call Level 5 Leadership to describe the nature of those leaders that led their company to greatness. In comparison, they do profile some good leaders who shone for a while but really did not last. Leaders like Lee Iacocca, the savior of Chrysler who rescued it from dire straits, and led it to five years of booming success, only to turn around and become consumed with talk shows, 
starring in commercials, considering a run for the presidency, and touting his own autobiography. In contrast to the ego-driven leader, level five leaders embody both personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious, but not for self, but for the good of the corporation. Level five leaders are committed to their successors, hoping that they will enjoy greater successes than themselves. They are driven for results. They're more like a plow horse than a show horse. Level five leaders attribute successes to others, sharing the credit but taking full responsibility for failures. Friends, such is the nature of true leadership. Leadership that suffers, that serves, that sacrifices. And everything they gather in this secular book on corporate America reminds us and directs us towards the truly great leader, the one who suffered and died for you and I. Friends, I invite you to follow him. He who did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we not only have an example of greatness, but a true Savior. The one who paid our ransom to deliver us and to save us for eternity. May he be lifted high, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.